It's great to be here. Um, really, I guess the first Sunday since uh, uh, accepted the opportunity to work with you and transition uh, role as the intern pastor and transition pastor. And uh, we are glad to be here today. My wife Marlene is with me, and uh, uh, she is uh, a great support for me. I mean, I've, uh, I look back at my ministry. If it wasn't for her, I don't know where I would be. She's been very supportive over the years. So welcome to all of us and a special welcome to Marlene, right? Yes. <laughs> we are going to be having uh, a few uh, children reading the scripture on a regular basis and youth as well. So they can be an integral part of our worship service together. Uh, we are a community that embraces people from different cultures, backgrounds, mm -hmm. and uh, gender, as well as uh, age. And we want to see that reflected in our worship on Sunday morning as well. This morning, uh, I want uh, to reflect on the gift of God's uh, guiding presence. And if you're new here with us this morning, we want to welcome you here. Glad that you're here. And... Uh, and we trust that you might feel at home here this morning. Um, I'm going to begin a series of messages beginning next week on the Gospel of John. And you'll find in your worship folder uh, an outline of uh, the Gospel of John. I'm going to look at the seven signs that you find in God, uh, John's Gospel. John is basically laying out the Gospel on two tracks. One track is the, the signs and the wonders. Uh, that uh, he performs, which are miracles, and the others are the seven sayings that uh, he attributes to himself, the great I am statements, which really take us back to uh, the book of Exodus where God declare, declares himself to be the I am. So here we have these two tracks. Uh, the One track is the signs and wonders. The other track is the, uh, the I am statements. And the train of the gospel runs on those two tracks, leading to the destination to prove that Jesus is the son of the living God so that believing we might have life in him. That's the whole purpose of John's gospel. Laying it out on two tracks, leading to a destination, to a conclusion, so that people might uh, believe who he is as the son of the living God. And so we're going to take those seven weeks leading up to Easter and the resurrection just to study the Gospel of John together. So I encourage you to read that ahead of time. I put an insert in the uh, worship folder for you to read and reflect on and some questions that each Sunday before I preach, you'll find the scripture for next week, the passage to read and some things to reflect upon together uh, so that you might come prepared on Sunday morning for that. Uh, Today, I want to talk about the gift of God's abiding presence. And I'm really thrilled to be able to speak on this topic. In my mind, and I think in the gospel's mind as well, the greatest gift God offers us is the gift of himself. The greatest God, a gift God offers us is the gift of his abiding presence. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote that God designed man to find his supreme happiness in him and in him alone. 
In John's gospel, Jesus gives us the only definition of eternal life found in all of scripture. And surprisingly, he doesn't define eternal life in terms of longevity of life, but in terms of relationship and companionship. This is what he says in John 17, verse 3. Eternal life, he says, is to know you, that is the Father, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ, the one whom you sent. And the Greek word we translate to know is used to describe the physical and emotional intimacy between a married couple. He's talking about a close, intimate, high-touch relationship. He says, what's eternal life? Eternal life is to know, is to enter into a close, intimate, high-touch relationship with the living God. He is your companion. He is the greatest gift he offers. He created us for himself. Back in Genesis, we read that Adam and Eve communed with God in the cool of the evening. They walked and talked with God. And we are told they were naked and they were not ashamed. Tragically, sin destroyed that relationship of intimacy. Our first ancestors rebelled against God. They snatched the scepter from the hand of God. They sat down on the throne of their own lives. They said, we don't need God. Who needs God? We know it's best for us. In shame, they tried to cover their nakedness and pretended that everything was okay. But it wasn't. Sin, dishonesty, deception, betrayal, deceit, disobedience, erect barriers between others and destroy trust. We all know that from personal experience. So the intimacy that Adam and Eve enjoyed with the Father and the Son and the triune God was destroyed and lost. And they were banished from the garden. Tragic story, really. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. God never washed his hands of any of us. He never gave up on us. He continued to pursue us. And the scriptures tell us the story of this relentless pursuit. The pursuit reached its zenith when God scaled himself down and came to live amongst us as the child of Bethlehem. He entered our world on a mission of rescue. He came to demonstrate how much the Father loves us. And on the cross, we are told, Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for your sin and for mine. It's finished, he cried. Finished, completed, done, paid in full. In his death, Jesus provided atonement for our sin and the way back for us into relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And on Easter Sunday morning, the living Christ met Mary Magdalene. Where? In the garden. Metaphorically speaking, once again, we have access to the garden. This is where we belong. In the garden on Easter Sunday morning, we find Mary Magdalene clinging to her risen Lord. We mistakenly think as evangelicals that What matters most to God is what we achieve for him. Wrong. This is a great lie. God desires to be known. He created us and redeemed us so that we could hang out together. 
His greatest gift is the gift of his presence. But here's the danger. It's so easy to substitute a head knowledge for God for a personal, high-touch relationship with the triune God. And they are not the same thing. Let me try to illustrate it in this way. I love the sea. And whenever I take the time to walk by the sea, it might be at the seawall on Dundarave or in Stanley Park, and contemplate the beauty of the sea, my soul is restored. No amount of reading about the sea can prepare me for the experience of actually sitting quietly beside the sea or going out into a sailboat and experiencing the surging power of the sea beneath my feet. It's one thing to watch a video about the sea or to read a book about someone else's love for the sea. But it's another thing entirely to walk along the seawall and see and feel and taste and smell the pounding of the waves on the shore Wave after wave, unrelenting, each wave unique and mysterious. Similarly, it's only as we slow down and linger that we fall in love with God, with all of his power and majesty, beauty, and unpredictability. We can't get to know God if we are in a hurry. We need to slow down, unplug our ears, turn off the television, and linger in his presence. In stillness, we are offered a sacrament, the knowledge of God. Not knowledge about God, knowledge of God. But we need to be still. It's in stillness that we get to know God. Like any relationship, it takes time to know the triune God. And we must give time to it. Now let me shift gears just for a moment this morning and reflect on the benefits of spending time in God's presence. Let me suggest four benefits. First one is joy. The second benefit is discernment. Third, transformation. And the final one is peace. First of all, joy. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 21, verse 6. The psalmist in this psalm is focusing on the king of Israel. Okay, the whole psalm is about the king of Israel. And the psalmist celebrates the many ways God has blessed the king of Israel and his leadership. And in verse 6, the psalmist declares, You, that is God, have endowed him with eternal blessings. And given him the joy of your presence. You have endowed him with eternal blessings and given him the joy of your presence. The Hebrew word presence means literally many faces. He doesn't mean that God has many literal faces. But this imagery conveys the sense of God's presence with a gripping intimate image. A few weeks ago, we were worshiping in a church in Langley, and in front of us there was a young family. The mother's youngest daughter was sitting on her lap. She was about two and three years of age. And during the entire service, for an hour and a quarter, this little girl sat facing her mom, glancing up into her face. At times, she would reach up and stroke her mother's face with her little hand. 
And sometimes her mom would glance down and her daughter would burst into a warm smile. Occasionally she would place her little cheek on her mother's breast, cuddle in, and listen to her mother's heartbeat. But for the most part, this little girl stared into her mother's face. Without saying a word, this beautiful mother was speaking to her child. And that Sunday, I got a sermon not by listening to the pastor, but by watching this little girl. Her mother's face was a mirror into her soul. Her face created safety, nourishment, warmth, contentment, fullness of joy, and a love for God. And in her presence, this little girl was filled with contentment and the fullness of joy. And I couldn't help but think to myself that Sunday morning, God wants me to know him in that way. Here's the deal. If we take the time to linger in his presence, and we need to be patient, we will encounter God's many faces. His love, his humility, his reliability, his justice, his compassion, his identification with us, his dependability, his justice and grace and patience and trustworthiness. And in the process, we will be filled with joy and a profound sense of being loved by the Father. And that feeling of belonging is overwhelming. It is in his presence that we discover the wonder of God's enoughness. He is enough. Whatever the circumstances of life, God is enough. And we are filled with joy. The second benefit of lingering in the presence of the Lord is discernment. We all long to hear God's voice and get his guidance, but we often don't know where to go for this. God's word has the answer. Jesus is our perfect example. Jesus didn't go from one place of ministry to another place of ministry. He went from one place of solitude to another place of solitude. Jesus began his ministry by spending 40 days alone in the wilderness with his father. Before choosing his disciples, he spent the entire night alone in the desert hills. And when he heard of the death of John the Baptist, his tragic death of beheading, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart to be with the Father. And after feeding 5,000, he dismissed the crowd and he went up into the hills by himself. And after a long night of work, in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place. After healing a leper, Jesus withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. And before his time on the cross, he went alone to the Garden of Gethsemane to be alone with the Father. If our Lord took time of solitude to be in contact with the Father, should we do any less? One of the out of that, actually, out of that place of waiting came perspective and discernment and direction. For Jesus to accomplish what his Abba wanted him to do, he had to get away. He had to sit before the Lord and receive direction. 
He said of himself, I only do what I see the Father doing. It was in that time of quietness that he saw the hand of God moving and worked in concert and partnership with that. Many of us are way, way too busy. We're constantly on the go. Our minds are preoccupied with so many things. We are bombarded all the time with noise, 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 noise. We have no time to reflect, to process, to savor the moment, and to enjoy the beauty of God's creation all around about us. The sacrament of solitude allows us to slow down, to listen, and to enjoy God's loving presence. The only way to know God and his will is to sit before him, to inquire, to hear, and to obey his voice. Let me just speak personally for a moment. During the last few months, I have purposely tried to seek more, to set more time aside just to be in God's presence. Made a decision to do that. Not always easy. Uh, in fact, it takes a lot of determination and a lot of discipline to do that. And one of the things God has been addressing in my time of quietness with him is my drivenness. During my 40 years of pastoral ministry, I have had a number of episodes of burnout. Times when I've been so physically and emotionally and spiritually depleted that I have nothing more to give. And while I've been sitting quietly with the Lord, God said to me, Bob, your burnout has been caused by your drivenness. Your need to fix everything. Your insistence on doing things which I never called you to do. I have gifted you to do certain things, but you insist on moving beyond your giftedness and taking on things which don't belong to you, they belong to others. In case you don't know, you're not God. And I really don't need you. Listen to my voice and do only those things I gift and call you to do. And you need to learn to say no. And so do some of you. There's found a verse in Matthew 11 in the message, chapter 11, verse 28, that says this, Are you tired and worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Great verse. Beautiful verse. And so as we learn to take time in stillness with the Lord, we learn discernment. We learn what God's saying, what he wants us to do, and what we should not take up because it's not our responsibility. And then the third benefit of stillness and solitude with the Lord is transformation. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Henry Nouwen reminds us that solitude is the furnace of transformation. 
he writes, is the one place where we slow down long enough to allow God to address our true identity and expose our false self. Much of our life is a false self. It's not what we are on the inside. In Solidude, he writes, we rid... We get rid of the scaffolding, no friends to distract us, no telephone calls to occupy our attention, no busyness to keep our chronic anxiety at bay. In solitude, we learn to stay still until our seductive visitors tire of pounding on our door and leave us alone. I like that. To be honest, this can be a painful and lonely process. You see, I don't really like my nakedness. And I mistakenly think that God doesn't like it either. And so I need to hide it from myself and I need to hide it from him. So I put on a mask and hide behind a facade of respectability. And the circumference of my life is really the facade that I let the world look at. And some of us never get beyond the facade and to go inside to who we really are. I discovered in recent days that my life is like a, a lot like an archaeological dig. As I sit quietly in God's presence, he gently but firmly uncovers layer after layer of my inner life. He patiently works his way down to the bedrock of my life. And under the tutelage of the Spirit, I uncover the impulses which shape me, both the good and the bad. In the process, I rediscover some wonderful treasures of spiritual truth and disciplines which I have lost touch with over the years, values and practices and experiences, treasures which I can dust off and reclaim as my own. But he also exposes the garbage which I hidden from myself, attitudes and practices and reactions, habits, and thoughts, and demons really, which need to be faced, acknowledged, confessed, and discarded once and for all. When I was a child, I spoke and thought as a child and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. It's in the presence of God in solitude that God transforms us into the image of his son. And then the fourth and final uh, benefit of solitude, which I want to talk about this morning, is peace. Listen to the words of King David. The Lord of the armies of heaven is with you. That's Psalm 46, verse 7. The Lord of the armies of heaven is with you. The God of Jacob is your fortress. And the Hebrew word here for fortress comes from the root of the word meaning high place, by extension, our safe place. It is used throughout the Psalms to describe God as a rock and a refuge and a fortress. It is the word for Masada. Masada was the desert fortress of King Herod the Great. Rising 1,300 feet in the dry desert air, the rugged flat-top mountain faced the western shore of the Dead Sea. 
And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Herod furnished the fortress for himself. In case of insurrection from the Jews or invasion by Cleopatra of Egypt. With its high summit and sheer cliffs, it was virtually impregnable. Masada was built for a retreat, but served as a safe place, a fortress. And our intimacy with God is our Masada, our safe place, our place of refuge. Just as a child instinctively flees to its mother's arms in times of distress, so we flee into the safe embrace of God in times of distress. But our safe place is not built in times of trouble. It's a peacetime project built and fortified in times of stability. If we wait until the upheavals of life to build our safe place, there won't be a place of safety to turn to when we need it. And believe me, we will one day need it. We live today in a broken world, and sooner or later we're going to be blindsided by evil and suffering, betrayal, death, disappointment, grief, and uncertainty. In this world, we will go through periods of intense darkness and uncertainty and suffering. There will be times when our faith in God will be severely tested, times when heaven seems to be silent and God seems to be absent. At such times, we are encouraged to flee into the presence of God in faith and cling to him even though we do not understand what's going on. And why can we do this? Because of our past experience of lingering in his presence. In the past, we have gazed into God's face and discovered the many-faceted nature of our triune God. In good times, we've gotten to know him, so we trust him. And we know deep within ourselves, no matter what the circumstances, that he makes all things beautiful in his time. In times of upheaval, the still small voice of the Spirit whispers, be still and know that I am God. It doesn't stay, be still and know why. In some distant day, the gradual sacrament sacrament of understanding may or may not be given to me. But in the interim, I cling to God in faith. As a small child clings to his mother in times of distress, I instinctively know that he is trustworthy and has everything under control. The God who drew near to Jacob as he fled from his, mother, or his brother's murderous rage is also my refuge, my strength, and my safe place as well. I am not alone. So this morning, I would like to challenge all of us over the next 40 days, which is the time of Lent, to set aside 15 to 20 minutes a couple of times a day when we sit quietly in God's presence. Solitude allows us to practice the presence of God as attentive listeners and as companions that are at peace in each other's company. We are there to listen, to be attentive to the still small voice of the Spirit. It's a time of love and companionship. It's a time to get to know our triune God. 
It's a time for us to let go of our agendas and simply listen to God and enjoy him for who he is. Couples who are deeply in love know what I'm talking about. In the silence of being together, we speak a language known only to each other. The communication that takes place in silence between lovers is profound and it's simply overwhelming. And there's a language that we speak with God in silence that goes far beyond words. It touches the very depths of our being. And we discover his enoughness. God's desire has always been to be with his people. He redeemed us for the relationship. He dwells amongst us so that we might delight in him. He is God with us in Christ to share the greatest gift of all, the gift of his presence. And that's all I have to say. Let me encourage you to take time this week and for the next 40 days, a couple of times a day, 50 minutes a day, for the sacrament of silence to get to know the God who loves us so deeply and so passionately. May God bless you. Thank you.